everybody. Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast. This is your host, Dave Stovall. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to be talking about a system for categorizing things of the Christian faith. If you haven't heard of this tool, it's probably going to blow your mind. I grew up with a very black and white, southern traditional faith. And then when I realized that the world wasn't as black and white as I was taught, I actually deconstructed into progressive Christianity for a while. But when the Lord was leading me back to historic Christianity, this very system of categorizing things in either essential, important, or personal elements of the faith was crucial in helping me come back. This clip originally aired in the Discipleship.org Collective. Daniel McCoy and Renee Sproles host a show on there called Theology Thursdays, and they interviewed author Chad Ragsdale about this very topic, and there's some awesome stuff in here. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Let's go ahead and dive into their conversation. Well, welcome to Theology Thursdays. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, today, we're talking about something incredibly relevant for the church, and that is uh, what hills should we die on? Uh, you know, what are the things that are essential to our faith? What are important? But what are just personal? Um, and uh, the guy who we've got to talk about this is Chad Ragsdale. And Chad Ragsdale was a professor of mine at Ozark Christian College. He's the incoming academic dean there. And um, I'm telling you, churches need to figure this out. Um, you know, what are the hills worth dying on? You know, is it worth dying on uh, the hill of mask or no mask or, or political stuff? Um, and uh, Chad has seen people who have had a really rigid, unbending faith, even when it comes to the, the personal particulars. And he calls it a plate glass faith. And uh, that kind of plate glass faith is just so rigid and unbending. Uh, it, it's, it appears strong, but then when the rocks come, it can get really fragile and can break into a thousand pieces. And so it's a really important discussion. What, what are you thinking, Renee? Yeah. And my, um, faith tradition. I grew up in the churches of Christ and we, everything was in one big bucket for like the very center circle as Chad's going to talk about. So um, there were no like essential, important, you know, and matters of opinion, you know, teachings, everything was in the center. So the stakes were really high to get everything exactly right. And so it, it, you, you come from this place of fear that, um, unless you get every single thing right, how can you be assured of your salvation, which is like totally opposite of the good news of, of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that Jesus has come, has come, his kingdom is coming, and we get to be participants in it because of his sacrifice, and we can live forever because of his resurrection. That's thrown in the middle with um, gossip and food sacrifice to idols and you know, all this other stuff. And it just, um, it leaves you... Instead of um, having freedom in Christ, it leaves you a slave to your own devices. It's really very works-based. And so that it's interesting to me that a wrong view on this can actually have several different really bad outcomes, like the one you described with the plate glass faith. And then the one that I saw, which was just this fear-based, works-based kind of um, religion. I wouldn't even call it faith because it's all on you to get it all right. So um, this is really important and very helpful, very helpful and and really um, critical in terms of discipleship, I would say. Yeah, and you were kind of mentioning earlier about how, you know, Paul talks about how there are things that are of first importance and, and we need to just be very clear on these things. One of the things I think is really helpful about this conversation with Chad is that he he talks about not just essentials and non-essentials, which I think a lot of people are familiar with those two categories. But uh, he also talks about a, a third kind of middle category that, that a lot of people don't uh, don't you know understand. I think it's really important. And that is that there are things that are, uh, they're not essential for your faith as in like they're not the, you know, God exists and Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but but they are very important still for your faithfulness to Jesus, and you need to we need to be able to get these right because otherwise we get uh, a lot of churches are going to say, well, if it's not essential, then it, it must not be you know that important. We must not have to deal with it. No, there's a whole category of things that are very important to our faithfulness to Jesus. We need to get those right as well. So it's an incredibly helpful conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. Like your sanctification is going to be totally derailed. If you get that important stuff wrong, you're never going to really become 
um, who God has in mind for you to be if you miss some, those big, big rocks, the important things. Yeah. So this was a great conversation. All right. Well, enjoy the conversation. We're here with Chad Ragsdale, and Chad Ragsdale is on the faculty at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, and uh, he primarily teaches in the areas of Christian apologetics, philosophy, and biblical interpretation, and he's the incoming academic dean of Ozark as well, um, and Chad has a, a BA in preaching and an MDiv in contemporary theology from Lincoln Christian University, as well as a D-Men in engaging mind and culture from Talbot the uh, School of Theology. So you have to say the D-men, otherwise demon. It's like, I don't think you want to get that uh, in, yeah. in seminary. But anyway, Renee, what, what would you like to ask Chad? Thank you so much for being here, Chad. Um, I love this topic because when I first heard it, it just made so many things fall into place. So what we want to talk to you about today is... Um, how do we categorize doctrines of the church? So, you know, is everything of a number one importance or are there, are there ways that we can um, kind of categorize them into tiers or circles or something like that? Yeah. So I, you know, as Daniel said, one of the classes that I've taught for a while at Ozark is um, apologetics. And apologetics is just, you know, the discipline of um, defending your faith, um, talking well about your faith to those who are questioning, to those who are doubting. And, you know, through the process of teaching apologetics, it, it became pretty clear to me that in apologetics, there are sort of first order questions, second order questions, and third order questions. And one of the things that I tell my students is, um, it's, it's important for us to focus on what really matters when we're, when we're talking about our faith, especially to those who are questioning and doubting, so that we don't get caught up in all sorts of things that might, they might also be very important, but they're not what's at the center. They're not what I call them bullseye beliefs. They're not at the bullseye of what it is we believe as a Christian. And, and I think that that's important, not just for apologetics, that's important even for all of our Christian communities, right? Uh, and, and for our own discipleship to kind of identify what are those things, those bullseye beliefs, those things that are absolutely essential. I call them essential for salvation. So these are, these are beliefs that, these are beliefs that you have to have in order to consider yourself uh, a saved person. Um, but then there's this other category of beliefs that might be very important. Oftentimes they are very important, but but they're more important as in regards to orthodoxy. So so they're important beliefs if you want to believe well, if you if you want to um, be um, be orthodox in your beliefs. But it's not one of those things where if you get one of these beliefs wrong, your entire salvation is at stake. And um, uh, so. They're, they're essential, but they're essential in a different way. They're essential for orthodoxy. And then there's this other group of beliefs that that may just come down to personal preference and personal opinion. They, they might be things that are very important to you personally, but they're not necessarily um, clearly articulated in scripture. They're, they're things that good Christians of sound conscience can have disagreements about and um, and it, it, what happens, though, a lot of times, the reason why it's important to get these things straight is we have this tendency to, to flip the order of these beliefs, to get to, to miscategorize um, a lot of the beliefs that we have. And so we have this tendency to move things that might be personal beliefs or even beliefs that are essential for orthodoxy and kind of move them towards the bullseye and, and, and come to the conclusion that anybody that doesn't believe precisely the way that I believe in all of these little fine details, I'm not even sure that I can call them a brother or sister. I'm not even sure that I can be confident in whether or not they're saved. And, and I've got a problem with that. And I hope, I would hope that a lot of Christians would have a problem with that. Um, I, I, I like to, I like to frame it up this way for my students. So we, I think um, are well aware of the dangers of what I would call moralistic legalism, right? Like moralistic legalism is um, 
is the, the, the idea that we can be saved through our moral efforts just by, by being good people, doing good things. Like that's what saves us. Um, and I think we're all well aware, like that is anti-gospel. That is, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, what I get a little bit concerned about though, is that people, the same people who would agree that moral legalism is wrong, they become kind of intellectual legalists where they would say, unless you actually believe in, in exquisite detail and that in fine detail, every single thing that you're supposed to believe and exactly in the right way that you're supposed to believe it, then I'm not sure that you can be saved. It's almost like we have this conception of God that he has this multiple choice test when we get to heaven. And unless we get a hundred percent on that test, then we somehow have lost our salvation. So I want to reject moral legalism. I also want to reject intellectual legalism and try to identify, okay, this is what's essential. And this is what's maybe secondary or third on the list. So that's really helpful. I'm thinking of um, people I've known through the years who want to want to dump everything into that bullseye, like yeah. you said. So how do we figure out what goes where? I mean, you hinted at it that the gospel, the sal- salvation is the bullseye, I guess. But yeah. is there, can we look at like the history of the church or any, where do we look to get help for yeah. categorizing these things? I mean, I'm, I'm going to look in two primary areas. I'm, I'm going to start with scripture. Um, scripture has to be our ultimate authority on identifying these types of things. And so I'm going to go to scripture and I'm going to try to identify what what do the pages of scripture tell me clearly are essential for a person to be saved? And then I'm, I am going to have um, an eye on the history of what has been believed historically by the church. Um, I think we should be very cautious, very, very cautious about articulating a type of theology um, or a theological commitment that would only be understood or recognized or accepted in our particular time, in our particular culture. Um, We are a part of a great heritage of faith that spans not just centuries, it also spans cultures, right? It's a, we're part of a global multicultural church that spans the generations. And we would be, I think, not just naive, but I think we would be arrogant to not listen to what has been the traditional teaching of the church. Now, it doesn't mean that tradition gets the final word, because it doesn't. I I feel like we should be able to critique various things about the history of the church, different positions that the church has had through the years. Um, but nevertheless, I want to be I want to be attuned to what has been the historical teaching of the church. But my ultimate source is I want to go to the pages of scripture. And what I find, Renee, though, is when I go to the pages of scripture, um, those bullseye beliefs um, are are relatively few in number, um, as far as like those beliefs that are absolutely essential for a person to to know that they're saved, to be saved. So I'm going to start with scripture. Yeah. yeah, I like that. That's a that's a great that's a great answer. I, I think of it in terms of, um, like you said, our cultural moment where um, we, uh, of course, in America, it's gender. That's a big you know cultural moment for us. And we, I'm thinking, I can look back on the history of the church, and the way that our culture is approaching gender is so unorthodox um, compared to historical Christian teaching, obviously in contradiction to scripture as well. So it's just helpful to me to see those two um, tracks, like you said, that have spanned cultures. Other cultures don't have a problem with that. They don't have a problem with that teaching. They might have a problem with another teaching. So um, that's helpful to me as well to think about that. Um, Now, I have friends, I have a child who is a just voracious reader and learner. Yeah. And um, they love to just read all different kinds of ideas. And they're, they're, it's a great quality to be a learner. But um, one of the signs of spiritual immaturity is being blown about by every wave of teaching, you know, as we were heard in scripture. So 
how can we balance that? How can we how can we be learners, be reading, be listening to um, other perspectives, but not get blown about as scribes? Boy, that's that's such a great question. And I could I could talk for a long time about that. Um, It it does. It makes me think of um, a line from G.K. Chesterton where uh, Chesterton Chesterton said that the purpose of an open mind is similar to the purpose of an open mouth. It's not so that it stays open forever. No, you want to close it down on something solid, right? So the reason to have an open mind isn't simply just to have an open mind. I think that's a a misconception that a lot of people have. Um, No, the purpose of having an open mind is to, to find something, to discover something solid that you can stake your life to, right? And so um, I do think that within the church, just within the church, but just even in regards to being like a mature person, I think curiosity is a virtue. I think we should be curious learners. I'm a very curious learner. I, I like I like reading people that I kind of know in advance that I won't necessarily agree with because I, I feel like it stretches me. I feel like it challenges me. And I think you grow in the process of that. Um, so I think I think curiosity is a virtue, but curiosity is I think a means to an end. It's not an end to itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, one of the things that I tell my students is, we need to be, we need to become skeptical even of our skepticism. We need we need to learn to ask questions even of our questions. Um, because one of the trends that is very common in our culture now is we almost just take pride in the in in the asking of a question, mm-hmm. whereas really we should take pride in not just the asking of a question, but the passionate, dogged pursuit of some sort of answer to that question. Um, and so, I I don't mind actually. I I encourage disciples to be in the habit of asking questions and to be curious. I think that's one of the ways that you grow. Um, but don't rest content in just asking questions. Um, endeavor to, to try to find solid answers or just to, to, to find that solid doctrine, that solid theology. Um, and learn to be skeptical even of your own skepticism rather than just assuming that you're asking all the right questions. Mm-hmm. That's really, that's really good. I'm thinking of, um, I don't know, maybe I think it's C.S. Lewis who said like the point of seeing through something is to see something on the other side. It's not to keep seeing through sort of like your Chesterton quote. Um, If it wasn't C.S. Lewis, it could have been C.S. Lewis. (laughs) We'll just say it was, we'll just say it was, go on from there. Um, So yeah, that's good. Let's be skeptical of our questions even. And kind of like, why am I, why am I asking that? Yeah, you know, one of the traditional definitions for theology was that theology is faith-seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of abide by that, personally. I, I think um, theology is, to study theology is to, um, you you abide in faith, but faith itself is sort of an antsy sort of way of knowing. Like faith always draws us to want to learn more, to discover more, right? Like we're never content with the knowledge that we have of God or of Jesus or what we've been called to do and to be in this world. Like we, our faith, our faith calls us to not rest content with where we are, but but to always struggle to to learn more, to grow more, right? So it's mm-hmm. faith seeking that understanding. In some ways, it's similar to to marriage in this regard. When you get married, it's not as if you stop growing in that relationship when you get married to another person. The the, the day of your wedding is to to enter into a relationship that is, in some regards, faith-seeking understanding. We're committed to each other, but nevertheless, we're also committed to growing through the years together. And and to me, to, to go back to your question about curiosity, I think curiosity for the disciple starts within the framework of faith. So I'm in this covenantal relationship with God. And within that relationship with God, I'm I'm a curious learner. I want to discover more and learn more. But it's not outside of the framework of faith. It's not in order to somehow discover faith. No, what it is is 
discovering a deeper faith, a more robust, more alive faith. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of modern people, what they want to do is when they're curious, they sort of, they feel like they have to kind of exit faith, like go out of faith and then ask all these questions out here. And then maybe if I get around to it, I'll get back to God, I'll get back to faith. And I think that's exactly the wrong thing. I think that we we study, we learn, we grow within the framework of that covenantal relationship. That's really good. That's a good word. Um, I love that. Um, so thinking of that, are there, are there some things that we can miscategorize mm-hmm. that would hinder our sanctification? So like you said, it's not about getting every single thing right to make us um, saved, answering all the right questions. Yeah. But if we stick something that's impersonal, that's unimportant or vice versa, important teaching that we shove it out to, now that's personal. We can just agree to disagree. Can you think of situations where that would be a problem in our sanctification? Oh, yeah. I mean, in both ways, right? So I've, I know some Christians, unfortunately, that, excuse me, that have um, turned really essential beliefs like the resurrection into more kind of personal beliefs mm-hmm. um, to their detriment and really to the detriment of anyone that listens to them. Like, to me, that is a grievous error. And and I think Paul would agree in a place like 1 Corinthians 15, like the resurrection needs to be front and center. It is an essential belief. And if you try to move it to the margins, then you basically in the process have destroyed that which makes your faith alive and meaningful. Paul says, without the resurrection, our faith is futile. So, I mean, so there are examples of that, right? Uh, But then there are other many examples where uh, beliefs that are more kind of on the margins of that target are moved towards the center. And we could could think through a lot of those types of beliefs. Um, You know, one... um, one in particular that comes to mind is what you believe about the word is eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end, the, the end times. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of Christians have the tendency to move their beliefs about the end times into the center of the target. And so what do you believe about the rapture, for instance? You believe the rapture is a thing? Is it not a thing? If, if it is a thing, when is the rapture going to happen? Um, is there a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth if you're premillennial? Um, is that more metaphorical language if you're amillennial? These are all just technical theological categories. But what tends to happen is, now here's the thing. We draw lines between different groups based on not essentials, but based on those other things, right? So like what separates a Southern Baptist from a Stone Campbell restoration movement person what separates a lutheran from um, a methodist a lot of times those lines are drawn based on um those other kind of secondary beliefs so what do you believe about the end times what do you believe about things like baptism what you know and those are all important important things you know what you believe about baptism is a very important thing um what you believe about the end times i think is a very important thing Thing. Um, but if you put it at the center of what you believe, then I do believe that it is going to stunt your growth in certain ways. And I think probably worse than that, it's going to stunt the growth of those who come underneath your leadership. Um, it's going to give them sort of a warped understanding of what it means to be a disciple and also what it means to be, more broadly speaking, what it means to be a part of the family of God. Um, and so that's that's the problem that I have with it is, um, you know, that bullseye is pretty small. And whenever you try to put other beliefs on that bullseye, um, things get kind of twisted. <laughs> that really clarifies fellowship for me, too. So, um, you know, my brothers and sisters in Christ are the bullseye people. Yeah. And and yeah, my, my Southern Baptist friend can have this alternate mm-hmm. view of the end times. That's fine. Yeah. That's totally fine. I can have my view, she can have hers, and we can we can still feel like we have fellowship in Christ. And um, you know, I, I kind of think of it this way, you know, um, we're all a part of the same family of Christ, right? Those are those bullseye beliefs that hold us together. 
But think about a family reunion. When you come to a family reunion, there's different nuclear family units that come to that same family reunion. So so when I go to a family reunion, my aunts and uncles are there, my cousins are there, my grandparents are there. We're all a part of the same family, but we're also a part of dis- distinct and different family units, you know? And that's kind of how I think about the relationship between like the groups that I'm a part of and the the groups that I'm not necessarily a part of, but we're still a part of the same family. So we have differences, differences of opinion, differences of, you know, theology, but we still are a part of the family of Christ. Why? Because we agree on the bullseye beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what's important. Okay. So let's bring this thought out to like a little bit bigger. We're thinking about individual people here. Um, and then now you started talking about groups. Is there is there a consequence when a church, I mean, I think there is, what are the consequences if a church miscategorizes some of these, slides important stuff into the center or pushes it out to the edges? Yeah. I'm thinking, in, um, just thinking in terms of people out there looking for a church, Yeah, maybe thinking something's not quite right here, but they can't put their hand finger on it. Well, and, and we've already talked about this a little bit, but I, I think there's a couple different consequences to this. Um, one thing is um, uh, it it does, I think, hinder your mission. It hinders your evangelistic approach when you have so many things at the center of the target. You know, so um, if I go to a Baptist church, should I really spend my time, resources, and energy trying to evangelize people that are committed and and uh, participating in a Lutheran church? Probably not, right? Um, what I really want to dedicate my time to is I want to dedicate my time to people who don't know Jesus as the Lord of the universe. I want to dedicate my time to people who don't appreciate or understand that Jesus rose from the dead and has given us that same victory over death as well. Like, that's what I want to focus my time and effort on. I don't want to focus all of my energy on fighting these intramural battles. Mm-hmm. And and now again, not, and Daniel knows me, I, I'm not opposed to having a debate. I'm not opposed to talking about these, these difficult issues of theology and whatever. Like what I get that, I get the importance of that. But if you have too many things at the center of the, of the bullseye as a church, as a community, that I think is going to restrict and twist your evangelistic efforts. Mm-hmm. I think it also is going to hurt your discipleship efforts too, because you're sending a message. You're basically at risk of turning your people into those intellectual legalists that I was talking about, where they can't, they have a hard time understanding how they could be a part of the same family with anyone who doesn't agree with them on every little fine point of, of theology. So I think it, it, does, it hurts your evangelism. I think it also hurts your, your discipleship efforts as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's bringing back <laughs> thoughts of, um, yeah, just the faith group I grew up in and had scooted some of that important stuff to the center. And yeah, you're talking, you're talking to your Baptist friend about, yeah how they can be saved, they're saved. <laughs> so yeah, right. yeah, you're right. You, you really you really hit that nail on the head. Now, progressive Christianity, which is mm-hmm. ever before us these days, um, I've been doing a lot of reading on their official website. And one of their principles they kind of live by is that like faith statements or this, this bullseye stuff we're talking about um, makes people afraid to ask questions mm-hmm. um, for fear that they'll be, you know, pushed outside the community if they ever question. Um, but to me, you know, not, not having any faith statement, which they do, they do have faith statements. Like that's a faith statement. We're having no faith statement. No, you're right. You're right about that. It's a faith statement. So can you just address that? I think um, at least in American Christianity, that's that's ever before us. This progressive Christian view that, you know, questioning is the is the thing and we don't want to ever land on anything, which you talked about, curiosity to close your mouth down on something. Yeah. But um, 
what's the what's the loving, truthful alternative to our progressive Christian friends who many of whom will be in a crisis at some point because of this type of belief system? Yeah, I it, it's perplexing to me um, because Jesus was never one to shy away from truth. Paul was never one to to shy away from truth. It's it's perplexing to me that people who would claim to follow Jesus, who would claim to follow the teachings of Paul, that we would somehow or for some reason become allergic to making truth statements and calling people to the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's there's different cultural reasons for that, perhaps different philosophical reasons why people have arrived at that position. I just think that it's radically anti-biblical and and maybe more. More than that, it's not very helpful. You know, like, why would we assume that people enjoy the sense of being adrift without any sort of firm foundation or any anything firm to anchor their lives to? Why, why would we assume that people are interested in that or need that or would be benefited or blessed by that? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's just making all the kind all the wrong kinds of assumptions. Um, it's assuming that it's offensive to tell people that things are true and things are false. Well, I mean, do we operate that way in any other area of our life? You know, we're denigrating our faith when we say that, right? So when it comes to things like science or history or math or whatever, we have no problem saying, yeah, certain things are right, certain things are wrong. But when it comes to what should be the most important belief that we have, that Jesus is Lord, uh, whatever, just be curious. We're not, we don't want to be too declarative or distinctive or whatever. Uh, what does that say about the nature of our faith when we can't even talk about it in terms of being true or in terms of being right, not just for me, but for everyone? Um, so it's, to me, it's, it's bought into a hollow and deceptive philosophy, a hollow and deceptive lie that our culture has told. And it's really denigrated and marginalized the power of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So it's, and it's sad because, I don't know, I don't want to be too inflammatory, but if you look at the state of so many of those churches, they're, they're decaying, they're dead and they're dying. And it's so manifestly clear to me why that's the case. Truth is the lifeblood of what keeps a community um, interested and vibrant. And when you, when you strip away truth and you replace it with some sort of sugary, superficial, um, you know, feeling-based dogma, which you're right, it is a dogma. They have a belief statement. It's just sort of a non-belief statement. Um, but when you replace truth in that way, people vote with their feet. Like, why... Why in the world am I interested in this? Why do I care about this? And so it's just buying into a deceptive lie, I think. And, you know, I know that sounds harsh to say it. Um, and I, I have many friends who would fall into this category. But it's just, to me, it's just manifestedly true that that this is, it's anti-scripture. And it's also just not what people desire or need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right about them voting with their feet. Um, I have people close to me in my life who, you know, have moved to a progressive Christian church. I don't really think they even knew it was, Mm -hmm. you know, at the time. And um, when you say anything goes, all roads lead up the mountain to God, you do eventually vote with your feet. Why get up on Sunday morning? Why go fellowship with these people? Why? um, Because everyone's good. Everyone's okay. Um, everyone can find their own way, and it's yeah. It's one, one of the things that I've one of the things that I've done uh, in talking to some of my friends who are like this, I I just sort of I I press the issue with them, and I I force them to confront the reality of the situation. That is there anything that you if I'm if I'm an unbeliever and I come to you and I come to your church, is there anything that you would tell me that is absolutely true? And that might actually hurt my feelings. Like, are you, is there anything that you would actually tell me that doesn't already conform to what I believe? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, to me, that's what, that's what a lot of people are doing. Like, they're trying to find out from the world, what do you already believe? And I don't want to step on your toes. I don't want to offend you. I don't want to. And so we will shape and conform our beliefs, our theology around what you already believe. 
And to me, it's like, again, you have rendered your entire faith meaningless at that point. Why in the world should I be interested in that kind of Jesus? I can have, I can live my life however I want and not, I don't have to go to church. I don't need Jesus because you've already confirmed to me that whatever, that I, what I believe is fine. Um, there's just nothing distinctive about it. That's a good question. I, I need to remember that and, and use that. Like, what would you tell me that would contradict yeah. anything I believe? I mean, I want to get knocked up against scripture and and let it beat me up a little bit. Well, I, I had this conversation with a friend that, um, you know, that one of the big issues um, in our culture today is, um, of course, sexuality, gender identity, things of that nature. And, and um, this friend of mine, he goes to a church that is affirming of certain things that I don't think scripture is affirming of. Um, and I just asked him point blank. I'm like, is there any, is there any point in which you feel like your church would look at someone and say, the way you're living sexually is wrong. The way that you're living sexually is sinful. And his honest response to me is, I don't know. I really don't know if there's anything that our church would actually say is sinful um, outside of, a, you know, maybe a couple really outlandish circumstances. Um, and to me, that's just like, are you salt and light at that point? It, it seems to me that it's impossible to be salt of the earth, the light of the world, if you're just sort of affirming everything that the culture is already saying. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at discipleship.org. It's our discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. It does strikes me as interesting that that a progressive church would, would, would say, yeah, I'm not sure I would call anything a sin because this last year, you know, 2020, um, there has, there have been so many examples of people being unforgivably, um, or I should say unforgivable towards certain sins, you know? So, uh, if, if you, you know, if you have a racist past or whatever, it seems like there's just, there are some unpardonable things. Yeah. And so it, it makes me wonder, Chad, if, if progressivism is more just a phase toward a different set of, you know, this is, these are the new absolutes that we're going to go by. You know what I'm saying? It's a secular fundamentalism is what it is. Um, It's the, and I don't, I don't know how, how in the weeds we want to get on this, but you know, the problem with progressivism as a worldview or as a, as a theory is that it's it's obviously relativist, right? So one person's definition of progress is going to be different than another person's definition of progress. What you call call progress might be actually repressive to me. So in order to to be a quote progressive person, you have to have some sort of culturally defined understanding of what progress looks like. So they're not defining progress in terms of what the Bible might recognize as progress, which is, you know, being conformed. Progress in scripture is being conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's what progress looks like. Progressive Christianity, though, defines progress in ways that the culture at large defines it. And so it becomes, Daniel, a sort of secular fundamentalist approach where, you know, set to take two issues, sex and race, you know, when it comes to sex, anything goes according to the rules of our culture. When it comes to race, it's the opposite. 
Um, when it comes to race, there are strict and rigid rules that are unforgivable, like you said, unforgivable if you break those rules and the rules are ever shifting and ever changing. Um, but it's the big idea here is that you're taking your cues, not from scripture, you're taking your cues from the direction that culture is already heading. And notice the first thing, like what happens is you lose both truth. Jesus came into the world full of grace and truth, right? So when you define yourself in terms of what the world believes, what I notice is you lose both grace and truth. So you, you, you lose the ability to talk in a coherent way about what's true, but you also lose the ability to actually like, if somebody, if somebody sins, like, how do you restore that person? How do you forgive that person? How do you, how do you allow them to move forward? Like progressivism really struggles with that. And instead progressivism is like the new Puritanism. It's like, we want to hang a scarlet A around their neck and because we're unacquainted with grace. Mm -hmm. And so progressivism has lost both grace and truth. And it's really unfortunate and sad and a little bit scary too. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. So, you know, like you said, the, the bullseye, you know, the center of the bullseye is, is pretty small. Um, progressives obviously want to make it even smaller mm -hmm. uh, and, and take certain things. Like, ah, it's not that big a deal, you know. Yeah. It, the, my, my question is: I think I think we have a pretty good idea of the at least the, we can conceptualize the center of the bullseye. We can we can get the idea of the personal things that are not that big deal, the non-essentials. Um, now, it's if we can make that distinction. Here's here's my worry, and and, and I'll form it in a question: is is just that um, if if people are too willing to say, well, it's not essential, therefore it's not important. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what happens to the middle ring and how important is that? And and you could you kind of define the middle ring a little bit more just, just so that we can conceptualize that and realize that there may be things yeah. that really are uh, very important, even if, even if they're not quite the center of the bullseye. Yeah, so I always think of the example of Apollos in Acts 18, where he was he was preaching the word of God um, preaching it passionately. He, he was intelligent. He was well-informed. The problem is he didn't have, he wasn't, he wasn't preaching exactly. Um, he, he had some, um, uh, he had some lack in regards to certain things that Priscilla and Aquila had to come alongside of him. And they actually, they helped teach him, disciple him, um, so that he understood the gospel more clearly so that he could be more effective. And I, I think of Apollos a lot when, when we get to those important for orthodoxy types of beliefs. Um, if like in order to follow Jesus as well as possible, I want to be as in line with the truth of scripture as I possibly can. Um, and to the extent that I'm not, I will always be hampered a little bit in my discipleship. And so, um, and sometimes if I'm hampered long enough, it actually might start to become detrimental to my discipleship. One of the passages I just talked about in uh, one of my classes, I teach Hebrews this semester. And we were talking about Hebrews, the end of Hebrews chapter five, beginning of chapter six, where he's sort of chastising these believers. He's like, you understand the elementary things. The problem is you haven't gone beyond the elementary things you haven't progressed from your mother's milk to solid food. And he says, the problem with that is um, uh, you're not, the author of Hebrews says, you're not well acquainted with the right and wrong, with righteousness as a result. And, and so when we're not, when we're not um, growing in our knowledge and, and having our knowledge refined over time, the, the, the risk is that we're stunted in our growth and also that we're, you know, there's something lacking in our discipleship. We, we, we lose the discernment necessary to know what's right and wrong, what's righteous and what's unrighteous. So that, that would be the concern. And so just if I can give you just a specific example, let's talk about baptism. Now, I believe that baptism is incredibly important. 
Um, and, and by baptism, I mean um, adult believer immersion. Like that's, that's what I mean by baptism. And I think that, that baptism is important for our discipleship. It's important for our communities. And, um, and I, I've, as I know you have too, Daniel and Renee, I've met so many people in my life that are faithful followers of Jesus who haven't been baptized in the same way that I've been baptized. Mm -hmm. And so how do I approach that? Well, do I believe that because they haven't been baptized in the way that I've been baptized, that they are doomed and destined for hell? No, I do not. Um, I, I don't. I, I think that there's something lacking in their discipleship. I, I, I want to show them what scripture says clearly about baptism and the importance of baptism. But I also recognize that there's a difference between the importance of baptism and saying, if someone hasn't been baptized in the exact same way that I have, then they have no salvation. Um, and so I've had those conversations with people uh, in the past, in the recent past, about, can I, can I show you a better way? Can I show you what scripture actually tells us about baptism and why this is such an awesome, unbelievable thing for us to be able to participate in and how it initiates us into the Christian life and how it's a public declaration of our faith before God and before our, our family. Like, can I just talk to you about the blessings of this? And I think that if you don't have this baptism, I think you're missing out on these blessings. And I really want you to have these blessings in your life. That's the type of conversation. Um, and, uh, but again, that's, it's important for your discipleship. I don't, I don't believe that an issue like that is essential in order to be saved and be with God in everlasting life. I, I draw a distinction there. So the middle circle and the, it is more like a sanctification arena where it, it, I think so. it, it helps us really walk in step with the spirit, trust and follow Jesus. Yeah. Just to grow as disciples. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I mentioned eschatology a moment ago. I, I think having a malformed eschatology can actually hinder your spiritual life. I think it can hinder your sanctification, right? Now you can still be saved. I just don't think that you're going to be growing, experiencing the life in Christ the way that you could. And so if I'm teaching you, I want to correct your eschatology not because I think it's going to save you, but because I think it's going to make you a more well-rounded, mature disciple. Um, so I, I guess that's the difference in mindset. Mm -hmm. So yeah. as a professor and or as a parent, um, have you ever had to kind of catch yourself and realize, oh, okay, I'm, I'm making a personal thing a really big deal and I kind of have to, you know, yeah. let it slide basically. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, but sometimes, you know, as a professor and especially as a parent, um, you do, you kind of do the pharisaical thing where you build a hedge around the wall, uh, around the law, I should say, where you're like, especially as a parent, you know, with teenagers, you want to tell your kids like, hey, the reason that I'm saying no to this is because what this might lead to down the line. And so I want to protect you from those negative consequences by actually drawing the line in the sand right here. And so for your good and for your protection, um, I, I need to actually recalibrate and readjust where that line is because I just see the dangers down the road. Um, now, where legalism is born is when you turn that line that you've just drawn like you turn that into the marker, the final marker. Like if you cross that line, then you are lost. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, so I want to stay, I want to steer clear of that, obviously. But I do, I, I want wise children. I want wise students. And a part of teaching wisdom is trying to show that, listen, there are implications down the line for these, for these false beliefs. And it may not result in you losing yourself or anything like that, but it may result in your harm. It may result in you not progressing the way that you can progress. And so I want to warn you about that right now before you run into that dangerous territory. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, Daniel, it's a great question. I mean, that's a part of parenting, right? That's a part of teaching is you've got to, um, you've got to teach, teach those principles 
because of the consequences uh, that might be down the road of abandoning those principles or whatever. So it's safe to say that even, even in the personal elements, a disciple of Jesus needs intentionality. Oh, yeah. It still needs to apply wisdom in the things that aren't black and white in Scripture. Yeah. I mean, even... <laughs> so let's take the personal preference thing, okay? Here's an example of a personal preference. Classic example. What kind of worship style do you like? Okay, that's a personal preference thing. But just because you say it's a personal preference doesn't mean you should stop thinking about it. Um, or even stop talking about it. No, I think it's fine to talk about it, to think about it, to actually be wise about it. Why Why do I like a particular worship style? Why do other people like a different worship style? Are there strengths or weaknesses theologically or practically about certain worship styles? Everything's on the table. Let's talk about it. Let's have that discussion. Let's, let's be wise about those decisions that we're making. But in the midst of that discussion, let's all just remember this isn't a salvation issue. And we can still be brothers and sisters. We can still be united as, as, as friends and family, even though we might disagree on some of our personal preferences. That's good. One more thought. Um, so one of the kind of principles we raised our kids by was that um, in children, actions precede beliefs. Yeah. Like a kid has to obey you. Like my two-year-old, they need to obey me. Don't touch the stove, mm-hmm. whether they understand how electricity sure. and heat work. So can you, but I, I think sometimes as adults, we think we can, we're, bit, we're better than that. Mm-hmm. We can just kind of think our way yeah. to um, sanctification. Yeah. And so have you seen, um, I guess, the power of that in your students, you college students or um, in like teenagers, your own or um, in your own in your own adult life where um, maybe obeying something has has actually brought it into the right part of the circle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you, you bring up a great point. I I actually see it as a little bit of both. I, I think that um, when you're young, certainly I think it's true that that actions do precede beliefs or maybe a better way of thinking of it is that actions condition us to beliefs. So you develop certain habits and those habits over time condition the way that you think. Um, and certainly parenting, teaching, you employ all sorts of things like that. Like um, I, I know you may not feel love towards your sister right now, but you're going to treat her in a particular way. And that's just what we do as a family. And I don't care what you think or how you feel. That's just what you're going to do. And that, you know, so yeah, especially when you're young, especially when you're immature. So take an immature believer, a young believer. I know prayer feels weird. Prayer is difficult. I know studying scripture, it's confusing. I know doing some of these things are not, I know living this life following Jesus is not necessarily coming natural to you because you are young in your faith. And so what I, as your older brother, what I'm going to recommend is just, um, C.S. Lewis talks about falling in love this way. Like you act it out. And if you act it out long enough, it will start to shape you. You'll adopt the shape of your habits. So I think that's true. I think it's also true though, that if you're not giving the why along the way, if you're not, if you're not training students or your children to think well along the way, um, then you're setting them up for um, for failure, you're kind of setting them up for a certain amount of rebellion because they don't have they don't have that an- that anchor for their behavior. Like all they have is sort of disconnected behavior, but they don't see they don't necessarily understand the reason why. Now, as kids, sometimes they grow into the why. Like they realize, oh, well, I know why I should treat my sister well. It's because she's my sister, and I need to love my sister and whatever. Like I get that. I grow into that. But there's some things that they don't necessarily grow into. And so they're just wondering, like, I don't know. I know I'm supposed to do this, but nobody ever told me why. There's so many kids that are brought up in church that are that feel exactly that way. Like all through grade school, high school, like they were they were given behaviors that they were supposed to do or not do as Christians. But I think a part of discipleship is coming alongside of them and, and telling them, okay, now it's time to use your brain. Um, now it's time to think things through. So uh, because we need a more robust 
foundation for our faith than just behaviorism. And, um, and that's what I see in a lot of my students. Um, I, I want to, I want to train them to be Christians who think, um, and, and who think well and who think critically about the world, who think well and critically about their faith. Cause I think that's also how you grow. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both to be honest with you. And it depends on where you're at in your maturity. That, like, can you say amen and hallelujah? I, I don't know. I have another question after that. Like, I just, <laughs> that is such a good word. Um, yeah, that's a good word. Good. Yeah. So, Daniel, do you have anything else for Chad? I just really appreciate you uh, taking the time. It's, it's always a real pleasure to hear your, your thoughts and, and glean from your wisdom. Well, I appreciate it. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate having this conversation. Thanks so much, Chad. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, that was such a great interview. I'm so glad you suggested him, Daniel. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, and very um, serious. I liked that. (laughs) I liked how like it's very intense, but, um, this, I mean, we're not left floundering, wondering, okay, well, what is essential? What is important? And then what is, you know, debatable or matters of opinion? Um, we have clues from scripture and one of them is, is, um, Jesus himself when he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and I'll just read it. He says, um, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he says certain things are weightier. And when you focus on the things that are not as weighty, you're hypocritical, which is, you know, that's a serious accusation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, um, you say you follow a God of justice and mercy and faithfulness, yet you're not you're not acting like it at all because you're focused on these outer circle um, issues instead of this. Yourself as holy, as mm-hmm. acting holy, um, which is kind of what the word hypocrite means, you know, actor. But yet the inside, you know, you might not be. Uh, what, what were the three things in that verse that justice, Jesus- mercy, and faithfulness? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, that's such a helpful verse. Um, whenever I talk to people about ethics and, and what Christian ethics are, because that's a really that's a really relevant question, you know, really relevant topic. Um, I like to point to that verse because it makes it clear that not all things are equally important in Jesus's value system, um, which, you know, a lot of people would like to think, you know, all scripture is, is equally important. I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, and Jesus showed us certain things like you know, when when you have a collision between keeping the Sabbath or healing a person, which one wins out? And we see Jesus purposefully choosing to heal on on the Sabbath. Why is he doing that? He's shaking things up and he's saying, hey, this is what a really good value system is. This is what's more important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just I think it's hugely significant that we um, we look at the Gospels really hard and see what Jesus thinks are, is important. Um yeah. Yeah. So, um, sorry about the ringing in the background. Um, so, yeah, I was thinking also of the passage in um, Ephesians 4, which Paul is not saying like, he doesn't use the, the terms like weightier, but he does say um, a list there that I found really effective. Um, it is, can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah I can hear you just fine. Hang on. Can you hear me now? Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. Um, he says, um, starting in verse four, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so that's another really good list. Mm-hmm. But, you know, otherwise we slip into um, this weird legalism. Mm-hmm. Where, um, where everything, as you said, like Jesus healing on the Sabbath, like that's discernment. 
at work. That's, that's um, looking at all the laws of God and determining what's weightier. You know, legalists just like everything's a death penalty, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, legalistic parents, you know, uh, what do their kids end up doing? They, they end up sneaking and, and just mm-hmm. trying, to, trying to subvert um, because the system is unsustainable. It's not, you can't live under a system like that, not, not in flourish. And so, you know, what you want is um, discernment and that, and that takes time. That takes the wisdom from the Holy Spirit, you know, explaining the word to us. It takes discipleship, mature people coming alongside you. Um, and, and again, everything's, it's not all or nothing, there are things that are important for our sanctification. And what if we get it? What if we get some of the important things wrong? Like what's the, what's the consequences there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so Chad Ragsdale's writing a book for Renew called Christian Convictions, and it talks about all this, you know, the essential, the important, and the personal. And uh, it's really helpful stuff. Another guy who talks similarly about this is a Southern Baptist named Albert Moeller, and he talks about first-order doctrines and second-order doctrines and third-order doctrines. And it's a little different than, than our system, but it's still really helpful. But what he says, and, and this is in answer to your question, you know, what happens when we don't we don't uh, figure out the essentials. We don't. We don't. Uh, we, we major in the minors, and we minor in the majors. Um, you know. So he he says that if you've got a first order doctrine, and you say that a first order doctrine is really just a third order doctrine, that that would be a progressive or, or a liberal. Someone who says, you know, the deity of Christ, nah, it's not that big a deal. I'm thinking of guys like Richard Rohr, who says, you know, Jesus was different from Christ. Christ is something that's uh, more universal, and um, and even God could be really, you know, very fuzzy definition of God. Anyway, Richard Rohr would be someone who would take some first-order doctrines, and he put it on the level of third-order doctrines. Um, however, Moeller says, if you've got someone who says that a third-order doctrine is on the level of a first-order doctrine, um, then that would be a, a legalist, or a, uh, I think that's the word he uses, is a legalist. Um, so if we don't, uh, there's just a lot of urgency to this question right now in our churches. If we don't really focus on the majors and say these are essentials and, we, and really ground those and really use our use our apologetics um, to defend the, the majors, you know, the essentials, I think we're setting people up to either be legalists or to be progressives. Mm-hmm. Um and either way, I, I think it's damaging to the faith eventually, because eventually all those essentials will get unraveled, whichever of those paths you go on, whether you're on the path of legalism or the path of, you know, unfaithful progressivism, eventually those essentials get unraveled. Yeah, you're making me think of our conversation with Matt Bates, where um, he talks about the gospel, you know, gospel allegiance and what what is the gospel? And um, I, I was struck Recently, um, in, in a classroom setting, we just kind of were tossing it out there at the beginning of class. What is the gospel? And there wasn't there wasn't a coherent answer coming from like those hundred people. And and I realized like, wow, we have to be able to articulate, you know, yeah. this essential doctrine of the Christian faith. I'm so excited to um, actually he's writing a book as well for Renew. I'm so excited to get that. Yeah, the gospel precisely. Yeah, I'm so excited to to read that. It's going to be um, concise and very accessible, and really help us articulate. Hey, this is this is in that essential ring, and let's be sure we understand the very good news, the very good kingdom news to yeah. which we're called. Absolutely, yeah. So there is urgency to this, um, but I, I'm just thankful that there's this. Uh, a lot of good thinking has been going into okay, what are the essentials? What's important? What's personal? Obviously, you know, renew.org, we have a lot of resources on that, but I just I want to encourage everyone who's watching this or who's going to watch this to just, um, you know, really think clearly about what those are and uh, try to make the major, try to major in the majors. Um, so we have one more week of Theology Thursdays, and that is the end. It's called eschatology, talking about the end things. We have uh, Dr. Gary Johnson with us talking about that, who's also going to uh, write a book on that. Um, so hopefully you can join us uh, next week for the final Theology Thursdays in this series, and that would be uh, the end things. So thanks for joining us. See you next time.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode today. I hope that it encouraged you and challenged you and definitely gave you some hope as you move forward in this crazy journey of faith with the Lord. Hey, I want to remind you that we do have a National Disciple Making Forum coming up November 4th and 5th this year, 2021, in Nashville, Tennessee. You can go to discipleship.org to purchase your tickets right now. So go do that if you want to be here for that. It's going to be great. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. I'll see you later.